0: Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Welcome, everyone. I'm Vicki Vasiliga, Director of the Clinical Specialist and Scientist section here at ASHP. And thanks for tuning in for this COVID-19 special edition episode. As we all know, COVID-19 has presented many clinical, operational, and educational challenges in the past year. With that in mind, ASHP is sharing insights and lessons learned presented by your peers from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting so you can incorporate these best practices into your own as we all do our part in caring for our patients. And now we are going to talk about coagulopathy and anticoagulation requirements in COVID-19 patients. So coagulopathy in COVID-19 has been observed in 15 to 39% of patients who require mechanical ventilation. It's been shown that these patients develop acute PE and DVT. Some of our early studies suggested elevated D-dimer was associated with an increased risk of mortality, and this hinted and suggested that there was some coagulation disorder being seen with COVID-19 patients. This suspicion was heightened further when some of the first autopsy results came back with some of the first COVID-19 patients, which demonstrated lots of fibrin thrombi and also extensive extracellular fibrin deposition in the tissues. The clinical utility of abnormal coagulation tests to predict a patient's risk for clotting, bleeding, and severity of illness really still needs to be determined, but it does seem like D-dimer elevations and prolonged PTs are associated with a decreased survival and an increased need for critical care. We had talked about the pathophysiology of COVID-19-associated coagulopathy earlier in the presentation, and that viral shedding triggers a massive immune response, leading to a cytokine storm. Causing hyperinflammatory states and dysregulation of coagulation. This will then lead to thrombosis. But there are some other pathways as well. Viral shedding causes endothelial dysfunction and the release of von Willebrand factor, factor 8, fibrinogen, and this ultimately results in platelet activation and further leading to thrombosis. Additionally, alveolar fibrin exudate will increase D dimer and hypoxia, reduced fibrinolysis, endogenous anticoagulant reduction in natural anticoagulants, and the overexpression of tissue factor will also increase intravascular fibrin and D-dimer. COVID-19 patients uh, tend to be at increased risk for thrombosis also because of the high circulating viral RNA loads. We understand now that this viral RNA leads to endotheliitis And because there's widespread expression of ACE2 receptors within endothelial cells, this poses a risk for these patients. Another interesting point is that on autopsy, there's a higher degree of tissue damage seen than would be expected due to normal upregulation of the immune system. So patients with COVID-19 truly have a hyperinflammatory response. And there's also platelet dysfunction in this disease state as well. This makes a patient the perfect setup for developing thrombosis. Going back to Virchow's triad in COVID-19, we have endothelial dysfunction and altered blood flow in these critically ill patients. We now understand that there's vascular endotheliitis. And then we have platelet activation, viral RNA floating within the circulation, release of von Willebrand factor, factor 9, thrombin, and fibrin. In terms of characterizing the COVID-19 coagulopathy, It has been compared to that of disseminated intravascular coagulopathy, but there are some key features that I'd like to point out that are different. In COVID-19, these patients have increased fibrinogen levels, markedly increased D-dimers, or the potential to have markedly increased D-dimer levels, as well as increased antithrombin, and patients may have markedly elevated anticardiolipin antibodies and protein C. In one study of 206 patients presenting with consecutively to an institution with COVID-19, a retrospective analysis was done in survivors and non-survivors comparing different coagulation parameters and as well as white blood cell platelets and other parameters. What we found here is that in the survivors, they tended to have higher platelet counts, lower C-reactive protein, lower interleukin-6 levels, but also had Lower D dimer levels than the non survivors. When comparing patients who were in the intensive care unit versus the non ICU cohort, patients in the ICU again had dramatically increased interleukin 6. They tended to have lower platelet counts and also uh, increased factor 5, factor 8, and factor 10 compared to the other group in the non ICU patients. As such, the American Society of Hematology has um, sought to characterize COVID-19-associated coagulopathy. The most common coagulopathy pattern in hospitalized patients is the increase in fibrinogen and D-dimer. There may be minimal prolongation of the PTT or PT, and most patients likely have some mild thrombocytopenia. However, patients with severe infection and multi-organ failure often progress to overt DIC. And in these cases, we see decreased fibrinogens with extreme elevations of D-dimer, prolongation of PTT and APTT and PT, and then there could be more moderate to severe thrombocytopenia, as evidenced by platelet counts less than 50,000. A multi cohort study of 400 hospitalized patients with COVID-19 uh, set out to characterize bleeding and thrombotic complications. The majority of these patients did receive standard VTE prophylaxis, and what they found is that there was radiologically confirmed VTEs in about 5% of patients, but this was higher, up to 7.6% of critically ill patients. The overall thrombotic complication rate was 9.5 for the entire cohort, and again, this was higher at 10.4% in the critically ill population. This critically ill population also had the higher D-dimer, fibrinogen, CRP, ferritin, and procalcitonin. In general, major bleeding rates were about 4.8%, and again, these were higher in the critically ill patients, and this might be due to these patients also having lower platelet counts. So in terms of thromboprophylaxis in COVID-19, it would seem, based on the evidence that we discussed so far, that all patients should receive thromboprophylaxis if their bleeding risk is low. In a retrospective analysis of 449 consecutive patients admitted, admitted to a center in Wuhan, China, they described that there was no mortality benefit with using heparinoid products versus not using heparinoid products in these patients with COVID-19. In general, 22% of these patients were receiving a low molecular weight heparin or unfractionated heparin for seven days or longer, and then the remaining patients were not on any prophylaxis. These regimens were, generally speaking, standard prophylaxis regimens. However, although there was no difference in 28-day mortality, They found that in the subset of patients with sepsis-induced coagulopathy scores greater than or equal to 4, there was a significant reduction in 28-day mortality if the patients were using heparinoid products for prophylaxis. And this was the same as well if the patient had D-dimer greater than 6 times the upper limit of normal. They had a lower mortality if they were on some sort of prophylactic anticoagulation. I will highlight, though, that this study has some limitations. So first, the authors utilized the terminology anticoagulation treatment throughout this paper, and this did create lots of confusion because it was interpreted as full-dose therapeutic anticoagulation, but when you read the details, it was in fact that these patients were receiving standard prophylaxis. Additionally, this study may not be generalizable to a United States population as it is pretty standard for all hospitalized patients with a low risk of bleeding to receive some sort of chemical DVT prophylaxis. So perhaps the marked reduction in mortality would not be generalizable to a, a population in the U.S. because we are already administering standard prophylaxis to these patients. In terms of using full-dose anticoagulation in COVID-19, there was an observational cohort study that evaluated the association between the use of in-hospital anticoagulation and survival. This was a larger study of about 2,777 patients. 28% were receiving treatment-dose anticoagulation during the hospital course, and of those, 14.2% required mechanical ventilation. So although there was no difference in in-hospital mortality for those that received anticoagulation versus no anticoagulation the treatment dose patients were shown to be more likely to require invasive mechanical ventilation and this might just be due to their severity severity of illness and concomitant disease states uh, that they required high dose anti or full dose anticoagulation in general patients who were mechanically ventilated if they were receiving anticoagulation they had a significantly reduced mortality and they This mortality was reduced further based on the duration of anticoagulation they received while in the hospital. So then we get back to patients who may not have a full indication for anticoagulation, but it seems as though patients with COVID-19 are at increased risk for thrombosis. So is it appropriate to use standard dose prophylaxis? One center, such as the Cleveland Clinic, has utilized the D-dimer as well as point-of-care ultrasound to help determine what the most appropriate regimen would be for a patient. So in this scenario, patients with D-dimers less than 3 micrograms per mil of fibrinogen equivalent units, they would get standard prophylaxis, and D D-dimer would be measured every 48 hours to guide potential for upgrade of therapy. If the D dimer is greater than three microgram per mil of fibrinogen equivalent units, then a point of care ultrasound was performed, and if it was positive for VTE, that these patients obviously would just get therapeutic anticoagulation because we now have something that we can treat. But if the point of care ultrasound was negative or not available and uh, or didn't show, you know, a, a blood clot, then these patients would receive high intensity prophylaxis. So this is an example of what the Cleveland Clinic did. They have their standard prophylaxis and high-intensity prophylaxis regimens listed, and I just wanted to bring this to the attention of the group. Um, They have also some recommendations for what to do in renal failure, including the use of a higher-dose unfractionated heparin um, regimen. And importantly, if there was confirmed VTE, then these patients just got full anticoagulation, and they... A preference for the use of anoxaparin when able, but if their patient has poor renal function or a tenuous course, they may uh, choose to use an IV infractionated heparin instead. So, in general, the approach to VTE prophylaxis in COVID 19, based on the American Society of Hematology recommendation, should be that all hospitalized patients uh, should receive low molecular weight heparin preferentially unless they have a high bleeding risk that outweighs the risk of thrombosis. They recommend holding low molecular weight heparins if the platelet count is less than 25,000 or if the fibrinogen level is less than 0.5 grams per liter or if the patient has some active hemorrhage. You may consider some dose adjustments for obesity. And then for patients with a history of HIIT, you may consider use of fondaparinux for prophylaxis. For patients who are not going to be appropriate to receive low molecular weight heparins, um, perhaps mechanical prophylaxis would be um, preferred at that point in time. Patients you know, who have contraindication to anticoagulation, they they only really have mechanical prophylaxis as an option. They don't recommend the combination of chemical and DBT prophylaxis, interestingly. And the last thing that I'll talk about is the high-intensity prophylaxis. So at the time of the creation of this presentation, uh, the American Society of Hematology acknowledges that many institutions may have adopted some of these intermediate or full-dose prophylaxis protocols, but they really can't, make a recommendation for their routine use, and do recommend participation in ongoing clinical trials if high-intensity prophylaxis is desired. In terms of treatment dose or full-dose anticoagulation for COVID-19, the American Society of Hematology recommends to reserve this for patients with an indication for therapeutic anticoagulation, i.e. those that have venous thromboembolism, high-risk atrial fibrillation, or mechanical heart valve. They have a higher threshold to hold these therapies. So if the platelet count is less than 30 to 50,000, you may have to hold these full-dose anticoagulation and perhaps just switch to prophylactic dose until the platelet count or fibrinogen level recovers. And as mentioned before, the intermediate or full-dose therapeutic anticoagulation for prophylaxis purposes is currently ongoing in clinical trial and under study. If VTE is highly suspected, but imaging is not possible, and and this is an important point I want to make. At the beginning of the pandemic, there was some hesitation with uh, being able to travel to imaging for these patients for pulmonary embolism. So it's important to recognize that you may just need to treat this patient if you have a very high suspicion uh, for VTE, even if you can't get the confirmatory test, if it's in the best interest of the patient. So you should consider VTE on your differential diagnosis if the patient rapidly deteriorates from a pulmonary or cardiac standpoint, or if they have a rapid change in neurologic function. At our institution, we saw a number of patients develop pulmonary embolism, have acute MI uh, with no other known real risk factors for MI, and also lots of ischemic stroke during the the peak of our surge. Another piece to be on the lookout for is patients who have sudden localized loss of peripheral perfusion. We also saw some critical limb ischemia in patients presenting with COVID-19, so this is another important point. Now we're going to get back to our patient from case two. So MT was the 34-year-old male With COVID-19, he's come to our hospital and has been now receiving treatment with CVHD and VV ECMO. On hospital day two, his heparin infusion, which had been targeting anti-10A levels of 0.3 to 0.5 international units per mil, was adjusted to the goal range of 0.5 to 0.7 after his dialysis catheter clotted. On day five, the patient clotted his dialysis catheter twice, and thrombus formation is now seen in the ECMO oxygenator. During your multidisciplinary critical care rounds, the team asks for your opinion regarding anticoagulation in this patient. So which of the following is the best option to manage this patient's thrombotic complications at this time? Change anticoagulant to high-intensity bivalirudin protocol. B, increase heparin protocol anti 10 targets. C, change the anticoagulant to high-intensity argatrovan. Or D, adjust heparin according to an APTT-guided protocol. So the best answer for this patient scenario is likely to change your anticoagulant. Whether to use bivalirudin or gatroban is going to be largely based on the patient's concomitant medical conditions and whether there's hepatic or renal dysfunction. Due to this patient's renal dysfunction, I think it would be best to choose our gatroban in this scenario since bivalirudin would need to be renally dose-adjusted. Clotted access devices in COVID-19 was a very large problem that we saw at our institution, and there's really not a lot of robust literature to guide what to do in these cases, and it's commonly just left up to common sense. So when patients are having recurrent clotting of access devices such as central venous catheters, arterial lines, and then also extracorporeal circuits which include continuous renal replacement therapies ECMO despite the use of prophylactic anticoagulation you probably need to initiate some antithrombotic therapy at a targeting a therapeutic range that you can set based on your institutional protocols so for instance with our ECMO population we have both a low and a high target for both heparin and bivalirudin protocols and then we have an argatroban protocol as sort of our like third line therapy if we can't use bivalirudin. One thing to do is to probably increase your anticoagulation intensity. There's not really a proven benefit with this, but it's worth trialing before switching the patient over. So this patient that we just discussed, we went from a standard intensity, uh, excuse me, standard intensity protocol to a higher intensity protocol with heparin. And that was a very reasonable first step, but Despite that, we're still seeing clotting, so at that point, it should be the patient should be switched to a different anticoagulant. In general, patients on standard intensity prophylaxis, if they continue to have clotting, you probably need to move them to intermediate intensity prophylaxis. If intermediate intensity prophylaxis still produces blood clots, then we probably need to upgrade that patient to some therapeutic intensity. And as we talked about, potentially switching anticoagulants depending on the situation. Ultimately, the patient's bleeding risk strongly needs to be considered when making a switch between agents or increasing the therapeutic goal. Now, as a critical care pharmacist, I never thought that I would be asked about extended post-discharge thromboprophylaxis in our COVID-19 population, but... As a wearer of many hats at this institution, uh, this did come up into my radar throughout the pandemic. So I think it's important to think about, you know, what happens to the patient when they leave the ICU. And this is going to be extremely important for transitions of care. So although extended thromboprophylaxis is not routinely recommended for patients with COVID-19, you may consider this in patients with other risk factors for developing VTE. And this high risk patient population may may have some benefit on an individual patient basis from extended post-discharge prophylaxis. This thromboprophylaxis may be given for up to 42 days. And the way that we would evaluate, you know, who's high risk is you can look at the modified improve it VTE score. And if it's greater than or equal to four, which the components of this score are on the right side of the panel here. So if the patient's had a previous VTE, that's like one of the highest risks. Known thrombophilia, lower limb paralysis or paresis history of cancer, ICU stay, complete immobilization for one day or longer, an age above 60, you know, some combination of these risk factors likely makes them high risk and may warrant the use of this extended prophylaxis. Additionally, patients with modified Improvit VT score greater than or equal to 2 plus having an elevated D-dimer greater than two times the upper limit of normal, Uh, they may benefit from extended post-discharge prophylaxis, as well as those age greater than 60 plus the D-dimer greater than two times the upper limit of normal. For patients who are age 40 to 60 with a D-dimer greater than two times the upper limit of normal and a previous VTE or cancer, again, this may be a very high-risk population that you'd want to consider using extended prophylaxis in. Ultimately, you have to consider the patient's VTE risk factors at the time of discharge as well as their risk for bleeding. You want to look at whether there's reduced mobility when deciding to initiate post-discharge prophylaxis. The regimens that are likely have the most benefit also derived from a non-COVID-19 population would be rivaroxaban, 10 milligrams daily, for up to 39 days, or batrixaban, load and, and maintenance, for up to 42 days. So, the key takeaways for coagulopathy in COVID 19 hospitalized patients with COVID 19 are at an increased risk of coagulopathy. D dimer and fibrinogen elevations, along with mild thrombocytopenia, are common. Patients with more severe disease will actually have more severe thrombocytopenia. All hospitalized patients should receive VTE prophylaxis. There should be a preference for low molecular rate heparin, but renal function and risk of bleeding should also weigh into this decision when selecting an agent. And ultimately, therapeutic dose anticoagulation should be reserved for patients with documented VTE. Consider VTE on your differential diagnosis if there's a rapid deterioration in pulmonary, cardiac, or neurologic function. And this is going to be a discussion with the treatment team in conjunction with pharmacy to help come up with the best anticoagulation regimen for that given patient. Thank you so much for listening and joining us today for this special edition podcast on COVID 19. Be sure to follow us at ASHP Official, wherever you listen to your podcasts, and be sure to check out our COVID-19 resource center at ashp.org backslash COVID-19 for the most up-to-date developments on COVID-19. Take care and thank you for all you do. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes access show notes and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and wanna hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.